We're in Genesis 1. I have to warn you guys tonight. It's going to be a little wild. It may not be quite what you're used to hearing in a Bible study. So, in the sense of how a show might say, viewer discretion advised. I'm going to say, uh, listener's discretion advised. And that's not to say you're about to be floored with sin. That would be awful. Uh, but this might surprise you a little bit. So, what we're going to do tonight is I'm going to set the setting. I'm going to set the stage with a question. Then we have a story. Wild, wild west story. It's going to alarm some of you. But you have to remember, this is a story. And then we're going to see what scripture does with that setup, okay? So there, you guys have been warned. So to begin, we have to ask this question, and this is really what we're looking at tonight. This is the point when we come to Genesis 1, is who is God? Who is God? The way we answer that question will determine a lot about how we see ourselves, see our world, and what we're supposed to do in the world. Some people imagine God as a type of Santa Claus. He's a jolly old guy, but he's also very strict on his standards. And he's making sure that you and I are keeping our lives in order, and he's going to reward the good people and punish the bad people. So people see God as some sort of record keeper of our lives and the whole goal is to please him make him happy and then you get on his good side the good list and it's Christmas forever other people see God more as sort of the same way but as a moral monster who not only is just making sure people are doing what he wants but unlike Santa Claus he's just like well I won't reward you uh, he's more angry about sin all the time and we have images of this bearded, angry face up in heaven who's just way too old, not maybe because he's so eternal, but because he's so angry. He's got wrinkles from furrowing his brow, and he's throwing lightning bolts at people. And, and we, we hear this around us. Sometimes we say it ourselves. We go through tragedy in life, and we say, why did God do this to me? Or, what did I do to deserve this? Or we live with guilt because of things that happened, assuming that somehow I brought this upon my own life or upon this person's life. Who is God? Who is this guy? Is he just some comical, old-fashioned image that people back when they were more superstitious conjured up and said, well, we have to have answers for everything we don't know yet because science hasn't come along, so it's God, and until science comes along, then we don't really know, and now science comes and the comedians all stand up and God's kind of this cartoon guy we make fun of, and it's a totally old-fashioned thing. So you and I, we're just totally old-fashioned people who worship this outdated cartoon character. That's a very popular image of who God is. Is God a vending machine? You want, there's a whole array of things you want. I am the dream giver. Punch D4. The machine says 75 cents. So you give them your tithes, you give them your prayers, you give them your Bible readings and your good deeds, and you hope to get D4 out of the machine. Is, is that what God is? So... Genesis 1, fortunately, introduces us early on to the main character of the Bible. Amen. He wrote the Bible, God did, through humans, and he's projecting himself to us through the Bible. 
But we need to know right off the bat, who is this guy? So Genesis 1 is going to set up for us, through the creation account, who this God figure is. Now, as we approach it, we need to understand that translation happens when there is Bible text. First, you're translating language. So Genesis is written in Hebrew. You're reading it, thank you translators, in English. So there's a translation there. But there's also the translation of culture or of worlds. And we often don't think of this aspect of translating, but this is very important. That those who Genesis was written to, and obviously we're part of that, but the original audience of Genesis lived in a very different world than our world. Not only a different continent, not only a different hemisphere, not only a different language and a different culture and a different set of values and beliefs, not only were they pre-enlightenment before science and technology, but they were B.C., they were way back in those stone ages we think about. The world was very different. So we cannot read this English translation of Genesis and approach it with our questions and our assumptions of what's important in it. We have to approach it translating our world into what their world was like. So there's a little bit of steps involved here in which I'm going to introduce you very wildly into a picture of what that world looked like. Now, how many of you guys are readers in this room? You like to read books? How many of you go to the New York Times bestseller list to find a good pick? Most of us are suspicious of those trendy things. It's great. Um, the New York Times bestseller list is well known. You know, it's, 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 it's a thing. You've arrived as an author if you can put on your book New York Times bestseller. And then you've just made it. You can make a career as a writer. Back then, writing was a very expensive format. Back in the time of Genesis, when, when this book was penned by Moses to the Israelites, writing was done on clay tablets, which were heavy and bulky. Okay, this wasn't the nice Kindle devices where we can have thousands of books in one little, one handheld device. This was one story contained on several tablets, and some buff guy's got to carry it out and say, here, borrow this. <laughs> this is the way it was. So writing was a very um, precious commodity, and there were few works out there, and those that were out there were well known. So... Everything virtually is on the New York Times bestseller list, or if we want to go this route, the Egyptian bestseller list or the Babylonian bestseller list, because these were the cultures in charge at the time of this writing. And one of the works that were sell selling, one of the works that was most well known was called the Enuma Elish. Enuma Elish. That is a Babylonian document, about seven tablets thick, and I don't mean iPad tablet, <laughs> clay stone tablets, which was recounting the creation story of the Babylonians. Now this was dated, the first found tablets of the Enuma Elish is 1100 BC. So to put this in perspective, this is 100 years before King David. 
Now, the archaeologists have looked at these tablets and they realize that these are not the original tablets, but they are copies of copies. So we don't actually know how far back the Enuma Elish dates, but it would not be a stretch at all to date the Enuma Elish as far as Moses. That this is a well-known story that the Babylonians were telling, and much of the world had a similar story. So, what does the Enuma Elish say? Its main concern is how their chief deity, Marduk, became king of the universe. So I'm going to tell you this story in a second. You need to understand is that in ancient civilizations, the gods ruled the worlds. And the human king who ruled your kingdom, he was just the representation of the gods. He represented the will of the gods to the people. So it's why uh, the Egyptian pharaoh was known as the representation of Ra, the sun god. Later on in the Roman Empire, it got so far that the, the Roman emperors just full on said, I'm not only representing the gods, I am part of the deity. When I die, I will be in that pantheon of gods. And so what happened is even way back in ancient societies, the king was often known as the son of God because he was the representative, the earthly figure of the gods in their pantheon. So that's how the kings maintained authority of their people is they used their religion to threaten. Hey, I represent the gods. Disobey me. You're going to have the entire ordered cosmos crashing down on you. Which, when we get there in Exodus, is why the ten plagues are so interesting. Because this is actually a battle of deities. Yahweh versus the Egyptian gods via Moses and Pharaoh. So the Enuma Elish is recounting how Marduk, their chief deity, became the king. You ready to hear this wild tale? Listener discretion advised. At the first, there was water, swirling, chaotic, wild water, nothing else. And soon the water began to swirl faster and faster, and it began to foam and froth and ripple and tremble, and suddenly this water split into two. One half became fresh water, and out of this fresh water came the god Apsu. Can you say Apsu? Apsu. On the other half, it became salt water, and out of the salt water came the goddess Tiamat. Can you say Tiamat? Tiamat. Good. So, out of this water, split into two, we have Apsu, the male, Tiamat, the female. And well, it didn't take long for them to realize their purpose. And so the two got together and they had babies, many babies. And these babies became the younger gods of the world. So from Father Apsu and Mother Tiamat came a horde of gods who would be given responsibilities over the different parts of the universe. Well, as kids can be, of all ages, they were noisy. 
They were disobedient. They were mischievous. And Father Apsu went to bed every night with a headache and woke up somewhere in the middle of the night from screaming kids. Father Apsu was not happy with his children gods. So he plotted to kill every single one of them. Well, Mother Tiamat, Mother's heart, could not bear to see her children killed by their father. So she alerts her firstborn son, Ea Enki. Can you say Ea Enki? Ea Enki. Enki, the firstborn son, was alerted. Hey, Father Apsu's really grumpy, and this time he's going to carry through with his threat. So, Ea Enki does what any good son would do in this situation. He gets his father drunk and kills him in his sleep. Well, Tiamat didn't exactly advise him to do that. When she sees her lover dead, she is enraged with Ia and Ki, her firstborn, and all of her other children, and she wants to now be the one to wipe them all out. Meanwhile, Ea Enki, firstborn son, leads all the other gods into the carcass of their father, Apsu, and make it their dwelling place. And in there, they have the hub, and they're strategizing for what comes next. Meanwhile, angry mother Tiamat pulls, convinces one of the gods to join her. His name is Kinku. Can you say Kinku? <laughs> General Kinku, she calls him. And she gives him... The tablets of destiny. These tablets were worn like a breastplate so all could see. And the tablets of destiny gave the deity who wore them the authority to rule all the other gods in the entire universe. Ginku said, yeah. And he joins Mother Tiamat to make war against the children gods. Well... With this power, Mother Tiamat and General Ginku conjure out 11 terrible, ugly, smelly monsters with huge fangs and enormous claws. And these 11 monsters, they lead into battle against the children gods. So Ea Enki, the firstborn of the gods, and his brothers and sisters fight valiantly against Mother Tiamat, Ginku, and the eleven monsters. But the battle isn't being decided. And sooner or later, Ea Enki and his siblings are going to lose too many lives. So they have a meeting in the carcass of their father, Apsu. And they say, what are we going to do? Who can we rely on to rise up and defeat these 11 monsters, Kinku and Mother Tiamat? And there's a murmur. They're too strong. We can't do it. We don't know. And then in the silence and despair, someone rises up and says, I will. And everyone turns to see this figure And there standing radiantly is Marduk. And Marduk leads his siblings, the children gods, against their mother Tiamat and the monsters and Ginku. And under his confident leadership, the gods are now revived. They're strengthened. They have hope. And they go in with full fury. And they end up winning the battle. 
but not without a dramatic moment. You might have seen this in how ancient warfare told their war stories where you have the battle going on and then suddenly you see the leader of one army approach the leader of another army and then there's that moment where everybody on the battlefield realizes, oh, it's going down and they all stop fighting and stand and circle around and watch. Well, there's Marduk squaring off with Mother Tiamat and in her rage and fury she lurches at Marduk monstrous mouth wide open to swallow him whole but what she did not foresee was how quick Marduk was with the bow Marduk pulled an arrow out of his quiver and shot an arrow perfectly into Mother Tiamat's opened mouth and the arrow split her going down her throat it split her into two halves what as she was hit and fell to her death, out of her eyes cried, from one eye cried, waters that made the river the Tigris, and the other eye watered the river Euphrates. Talk about cry me a river, huh? Save your drama for your mama. Mother Tiamat, oh my goodness. So, Marduk... After successfully conquering Tiamat, splitting her in two with his arrow, well, by then it's just roundup time. And Marduk is able to get the 11 monsters, and he chains them up, and he chains them to his ankle to drag them around to show everyone, look who I conquered. Meanwhile, Ginku, who tried to escape, was surrounded, and they said, you, you are the troublemaker of everything. And so they decide to execute Ginku, and they put him to death. The honor to do so went to Ea Enki, the firstborn of the sons. And he put Ginku to death. And with his blood, Ginku's blood, Ea Enki mixed the blood with mud. And there formed a being which he called Lalu. Lola, actually. <laughs> Say Lola. <laughs> And Lola became the first human. And when the gods saw the monsters chained to Marduk's ankles and Ea Enki forming the first human, they applauded and praised Marduk for his bravery. Because you see, Marduk had set the gods free. And now with the creation of Lola... The gods never had to work again. And they put Lola and his race to work to serve the gods and to meet the needs of the gods always. So, in their appreciation to Marduk, they erected a house for him. And Marduk moved into the house, dragging the eleven monsters with his foot. By the way... This is a picture which the New Testament picks up on. It was a very common story to say your king would drag your conquered foes behind him. Caesar would ride into Rome on his white horse with the hordes of the conquered generals and kings he took over just to show everyone in Rome, I am a good emperor. Look who I conquered. A parade of accomplishments. Marduk's doing the same. A parade of accomplishments. Eleven monsters. And, and... Jesus, Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, that Jesus 
trailed the entire host of darkness and the devil behind him in victory prayed because of the cross. Well, Marduk drags them into his temple and like any early king would do, like Gaston, if you will, sets up the monsters over his mantle place. Look what I've done. And then he sits down on the throne in his house. What did he do with the two halves of Mother Tiamat? With the upper half, he stretched it out as the heavens. And with the lower half, he stretched it out and made the earth. So that the gods lived in a little den made of their father's carcass. And then they made the heavens and the earth out of their mother's carcass. And Marduk was given a palace to sit with 11 monsters adorned on his wall and ruled over them. And they put the humans to work to serve them. You found all this in Genesis? This is a setup. So I told you, listener discretion advised, this will be wild. I warned you where this is going so that you wouldn't lose me. This is the way pagans talked about creation. And yes, this is Babylonian story. Egyptians had their story. The Philistines had their stories. But paganism had common themes in their stories. And they all centered around the basic concept of the one god was bad and had a horde of demons from a chaotic abyss. And then there was a king god who rose up and conquered and restored order. And that god was hailed as the king god. Basically, they were answering the question, why is our king god the king? This is why. This is what Marduk did. This is how Marduk became king. Well, when we come to Genesis, this world is the world in which Genesis is written in. Now, what we're going to see in Genesis is a battle like the pagan stories, but it's a very different kind of battle. Now, this is not, as some people will say, oh, well, Moses just copied from the stories you heard in Egypt and then just made something up for the Israelites. Not quite. Moses, out of his awareness of how the world and how Israel already knew about the other stories of creation, Moses borrowed elements to reshape them and say, yeah, their gods did that, but this is how Yahweh does things. Okay? So there are some similarities, but there are far more differences. What's Moses doing? Once again, he's pulling from the bestsellers of the time and saying, that's how the world talks about it, but this is how our God does it. So he's one-upping everyone else. So let's look at Genesis 1, shall we? In short, what we're going to see is, This is how God, Yahweh, became king of the entire universe. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a title. Now we open into the first scene. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God, the Ruach of God, was hovering over the face of the waters. It begins bad. And we covered these two verses last week. But in sum, 
formless and empty and darkness. This is not a good start. This is the villain that God will overcome. This is the battle that God will wage. But again, we're going to see it very differently. Where Marduk and the other gods used sex to kind of make things happen and used violence to make other things happen, God is just going to use speech and words. So in verse 3, God begins his six-day battle. In verse 3, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning. The first day. Verse 6. Second day. And God said. So, so far this is his only offense. He's speaking to this villainous, unmanaged chaos. He said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And now God for the third time launches an attack and he says... Let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place, and let dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And again he attacks and says, and God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, and which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning the third day. So in the first three days we see God launching an attack against the formlessness and the emptiness. There's no purpose, no life here. But as king, God sees that as evil and wants there to be structure, order, and wants there to be life and fruitfulness. So he moves into this wasteland and he begins conquering, but not by having sex with other gods or by slaughtering other monsters. He comes into this wasteland and simply begins speaking and God said, let there be light. And what does it say? There was light. Everything is immediately responding to his voice. And this is what an ancient would conceive as being the most powerful deity, the most powerful king in existence, is one who simply speaks and everything stops what it's doing and obeys on the dime. Notice that nowhere do we see the darkness that was there in verse 2, when God says, let there be light coming against the darkness. Nowhere does the darkness say, well, wait a minute. Give me a position of power and then I'll obey you. Or, oh yeah, take this buster and then a battle starts. Nowhere do we see that. But that's the common creation story. God simply speaks and the darkness says, yes, sir, right away, sir, I'm your servant, sir. Now we do see a couple similarities so far. The idea of splitting Tiamat into the heavens and the earth. We see the water splitting. But again, 
This is not because God was almost killed and then with an arrow shot through the mouth of a monster. This is just God saying to the waters, split, and they split. There's no battle necessary. There's no gore and guts. There's just majestic, sublime power. And it does so. So the first three days, what we see God doing is he takes the formlessness and he gives it form. Now we're going to see him in the next three days take the emptiness and fill the things he formed. So if you will, he's made three kingdoms and he's now going to populate these three kingdoms. So in verse 20, uh, verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. So remember in day one, he said he called the dark day or the dark night and the day, the light he called day. Those are realms he established. Now he's filling these realms with sun and moon stars. So he says, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, verse 15, and let them be light and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. See that important phrase? It was so. No rebellion, no resistance. He's in full control. 16. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So far, everything's going just as he wants. And there was evening and there's morning the fourth day. Okay, now, remember in day two, he split the waters so that there was heavens, there was air, and there's also seas, there's also water. So now he's going to fill it with birds and fish in day five. Verse 20, and God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swam, swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. It was bad in verse two, but it's getting good. Verse 22, and God blessed them, saying, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on earth. Fill it. It was empty in verse 2. I want to see life everywhere. So he commands them, multiply, fill it up. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. Verse 24 is day 6. So we've seen him create three realms, and he's been filled in the first three days, and in the next few days, he's filling these realms with life. So remember, in day three, he created land, earth. Now he's going to fill the earth in day six. Verse 24, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion, rulership, kingship, 
over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Hold on. When Marduk had conquered the chaotic beasts and the enemy, not just speaking and having authority like Yahweh, remember how humans were made. They took the blood from their enemy Kinku and mixed it with mud and made Lola to serve the gods while the gods kicked it up at Marduk's house and partied forever. We don't see that picture of humanity here in Genesis. Suddenly we get the sense that we are on holy, sacred ground. And we're going to talk more about this next week, just looking at the humanity aspect of creation. But in short, we see something very important happening. The whole narrative slows down here. It even pauses for poetry in verse 27. And God, for the first time, asks a group of people that are around him, let, let us, like, what should we do? Let's make man in our image. There's a council. Everything else is just God's saying so, saying so. This time God says, wait, this is so important. I want the entire, we'll talk about it next week, but everyone that's around me to have a say in what's happening next. They're all going to be involved. And so the humans are made, and what does it say? It says that God gave them dominion. <coughs> over everything. Marduk looked at Lalu and said, Lola, it's all the same, right? <laughs> looked at him and said, ah, I'm glad you have two hands and two feet. I'll be up there. Bring me some grapes and cheese. But God looks to Adam and Eve and says, look at all of this. I want you to rule it with me. I put all of this here with my word. I named everything. I am the ultimate deity. I am the king of this place. And I want you to have the same dominion with me. You're going to, that's why you're like me. You're going to rule it with me. A totally different viewpoint than what Lola was made for. Adam and Eve are made for royalty. So God then in verse 28 didn't enslave them. It says he blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. He doesn't say, make sure you bring it all to me and then get the scraps. No, you have them for food. I don't really need it. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw that everything he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. 
Marduk has a battle. So does Yahweh. But it's a very different battle. He's not slaughtering things. There's no resistance. There's no struggle. Are we going to make it? God's just in full control, moving onward. And He's only speaking. And with His voice, He's naming, showing His authority over it. Ten times you count the phrase, And God said. This is the original Ten Commandments. And not one of them are broken. The creation obeys. God is a king. Like the Babylonians try to say Marduk was. But this king seems more authoritative. And creation hosts his kingdom. He set this all up so that he could rule somewhere. And then he made us to come alongside with him. Wow. This is who our God is. He's a king. And in six days, by only speaking, he wins. And what was not good in verse 2, by verse 31, is very good. That's sign one that he wins. There are two more signs to show us that he wins. Genesis want to make it very clear. This king won without any doubt. There's no jury out about it. He won. Not only did he say it's very good, but second... We see that he created the humans, but what did he call the humans? They said, let us make man in our image. Now this goes back to the way ancient kings did things. When a king entered into someone else's territory and conquered that land, he did two things immediately upon entering that land. First, he built a temple on that land to show the conquered people your God was nothing compared to our God. He beat your God. So he's the God that's now worshipped on this land. Second, the king erected an image of himself in the land so that all the conquered peoples will remember who's in charge of this land. What do we see God do here? is that he makes an image of himself on the earth. What is that saying to ancient readers? It's saying, well, we know what pagan kings do. Wow, this is what God's, God has conquered the earth. It's his. And he set his own image on it to remind the entire world who's the king. It's quite a job he's given us. And then third, so it's all good. He makes his own image. Now how about that temple part? Kings would make a temple on their new land. Marduk, they made him a palace. And when he sat in there, well, it was a temple. It's what the Babylonians said about their temple. This is where Marduk sits and rules. God does the same, except we don't see anyone constructing a temple for him. Because... The entire earth is his temple. And so what he does is he simply moves in. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. This is what the seventh day is saying. It's saying he wins. 2 verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. The battle's over. 
and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because it, on it he rested from all the work that he had done in creation. <laughs> rest in the ancient mind did not mean like sometimes we say, I want a rest day. And that just means that there's a good game on TV or a good movie you want to see, and you put your feet up and have popcorn and eat things you shouldn't eat. Like, that's a rest day. No, in, in their society, a rest day was not disengagement from life. It meant engagement in a new level because the obstacles that were between you and your goal are now removed. So there's no more battle or striving. It's accomplished. Now I can do what I really set out to do. So as long as a king has enemies running amok on his land, a king cannot rest. But as soon as the enemies are removed from his land and subdued, then the king can rest. But it doesn't mean he just puts his feet up. It means that the king can now be a king because everybody is obeying his authority. And when it says that God rested on the seventh day, it means two things. It means one, he wins because there's nothing else to conquer. And second, it means that he moved in to the world he made. He moved in. Listen to this. This is an actual quote from the Enuma Elish. When Marduk won his thing. Here it is. The gods are so excited. They say this. We will make a shrine. That's, that's a building. Which is to be called by name chamber. That shall be our stopping place. And we shall find rest therein. We shall lay out the shrine. Let us set up its emplacement. And when we come there, we shall find rest therein. And when Marduk heard this, heard that they wanted to make a building which they could move in and rest. When Marduk heard this, his features glowed brightly like the day. And he said, then make Babylon the task that you requested. Let its brickwork be formed. Build high the shrine. So when Marduk wins, he wants the shrine built so the gods can move in and rest. And when God wins, he doesn't have to build anything because he already made everything. He moves into the world as his resting place. God moved in. It's his now. And we see that later as he walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Brothers and sisters, this is what our God does. His word alone has the authority to put right what is wrong. His word alone can turn the emptiness, the meaninglessness, the shapelessness, that you see at the beginning of creation and turns it into something that's very good, establishes his stamp of presence upon it, moves in and dwells with it and rests there. This is what our God is like. He's not hovering over us as the enemy. I'm going to get you. And he's not violent in his means. He does not ever want to do those things. He's wanting to move into our world too. And the way that God moves into our lives is when we submit, as the creation did, to His voice. It's not complicated. 
It's not God saying, do these things and then you will meet my standards and then my divine rest will be upon you. Not at all. God gave these first original ten commands, these ten he saids, and things just simply complied. And when our lives hear his word and his voice and we comply, I'm not saying perfectly. We have mistakes because we're limited. But when the willingness is there and it doesn't want to resist the maker, it doesn't want to put up a fight and start its own war. When the willingness is to bow before God and call him our king who makes all things very good, when that is present, God can move in and bring his rest into our lives. I know from talking to so many people that There is a lot of battle going on in our lives. And there's a lot of exhaustion. And there's a lot of, I don't know if I can make it. There's a lot of striving. There's a lot of Marduk stories in this room. And we're just waiting for that hero to stand up or someone to give me the strength to, yeah, get him. But the Bible's calling us into a different world and into a different way. And it's saying, you don't have to live that battle anymore. God is the one doing the fighting. We simply have to, and it's his word. That's the only fighting in God. It's not even violent. It's just authority. It's just, I want this to happen, and it happens. That is how the battle ends. It is very quick. Painful only to the degree that you want to be king. Sometimes there is a little pain because God has to take off the robe and not take off the crown. And it hurts when you see that precious crown with all the gems you earned in it. The people I climbed over and the family I sacrificed and the hard work I did to earn those gems. And just to see them throw it in the fire hurts. But there's rest. So we're going to take communion tonight. And we have to understand that we don't have a vending machine. We don't have a Santa Claus. We don't have an angry thunderbolt throwing Zeus. We don't have Mother Tiamat or Father Apsu hovering up there grumbling, cranky. America, turn back to God. I mean, I would like to see that, but he's not cranky up there. He's simply speaking, and he's been speaking from Genesis 1, and he's speaking through Jesus, he's speaking through Scripture, he's speaking tonight, and he's just patiently waiting for us to say, yes, King, my life is yours. I want to enter into your creation. I want to hear you say very good. I want that rest. So the worship team's coming up right now to lead us in a song. In which we can say, God, please, your word is what commands me. You're the king, not me. And you're a good king. And so we're going to hold the broken body of Jesus, the spilled blood of Jesus in the cracker and in the cup. It's his body, it's his blood. And these elements remind us that this king isn't a bully. He doesn't push us into getting his way. He breaks himself so that we can come to him.
This is a king who doesn't say, kiss my feet, but stoops to wash your feet. So that you will want to have his word be the authority. So, Jesus, as we look at your sacrifice tonight, I pray that you will open our ears and hearts to hear your voice, that we would stop resisting it and let the battle end and let you look over us and say, it is good, it's all good, and to invite us into your rest. God, we are the ones that create monsters in our life. And we often blame you for them. But we now recognize that at your word alone, all will be quieted. We do learn in, I think it's 2 Kings 18 or so, um, Elijah hears the voice of God, but it's in a quiet whisper. And sometimes we're waiting to hear someone yelling at us. Idiot! Listen to me! But that's not God's voice. Don't listen to that one. That's shame. That's the devil shaming you. We try to look for the miraculous. And God does that. But you're often just going to follow whatever offers the best eye candy. Now tonight, God whispers to our hearts gently and lovingly, as a lover would whisper to another lover's ear, just so close to you. And you might have to turn something off to hear it. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Amen.